New Stories, Bold Legends, Stories from Sydney Lunar Festival is a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year. This is season two. In last season, we introduced you to a range of successful contemporary Australians, from artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. This season, we're stepping back in time and introducing you to some colourful characters from history who have helped shape Australia. From newspaper moguls to department store kings, publicans and tea room merchants, you'll meet people who have made their mark in creating the unique culture we see in our country today. My name's Valerie Koo, the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, printmaker and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, I explore the stories and history of people who melded their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country we call home. In previous episodes, we've met a number of men who have made their mark in the history of Sydney. But what about the women? In this episode, we focus on Chinese-Australian women and try to figure out why there is so little mention of them in our history books. In April of 1918, Sydney was a blaze of colour with dozens of stalls, stages and a general funfair vibe. The occasion was the Australian Red Cross Day, raising money for the charity. On Moore Street, you could buy coffee and fruit and veggies. At Macquarie Place and Circular Quay, you could dance to live bands. And stalls were set up at the corners of Elizabeth Street. On Castle Race Street, a returned serviceman was selling jam out the front of the Australia Hotel. Town Hall was dressed up in bunting. There was a lucky dip with the chance to find a pair of diamond earrings in Queen Square. And at Central Railway Station, you could have a spin on the chocolate wheel. And at the heart of it all, in Martin Place, ladies had set up stalls and were selling various goods. Cakes, linen, vegetables, jam, everything. One stall in particular was very popular. It was bedecked with Chinese lanterns and stocked with Chinese fancy wear, silk, porcelain, cushions and other novel articles. Running the stall were 20 Chinese-Australian ladies. Altogether, the Chinese stall raised more than £600 for the Red Cross and the day was considered a huge success. We know about these women because they were mentioned in a newspaper article about the event. Looking around Martin Place today, you'll see a diversity of nationalities, literally people from every corner of the earth. But back in 1918, the 20 Chinese women at their stall, surrounded by their lavish goods, must have been a rare sight. The White Australia policy had been in force for almost two decades and the Chinese population in Australia was in decline. So who were these women? How had they made a home here? And how can we ever learn about their history? In the stories of Chinese and Asian people in Australian history, there's one group that's noticeably missing. Women. There were many notable Chinese men in Sydney's early days and in the 20th century. And if you've been listening to this podcast series, you've discovered some of them. And if you're wondering why there are multiple episodes about men from history, but not many about historical Chinese women, that's because there's very little information in archives, in libraries, and so on. Of course, I'm talking about Chinese women from history in Sydney. It's a different story today, where there are certainly many visible Asian women who are making their mark and kicking goals in the community, and we interviewed some of them last season. From history, though, not so much. Surely there were some ladies too, right? Well, why don't we hear about them? Well, it's complicated. 
The fact is that in the early days of the colony, there really weren't that many Chinese women. The people who were migrating here were young men trying to make their fortune before heading back home. These were the sorts of men who were heading to the gold fields or clearing bushland or working as general labourers. Not a lot of scope for women in that scenario. Having said that, there have always been Chinese women in Australia since European settlement. The number was small to begin with, but increased over time. In 1881, there were just 259 Chinese women compared to 38,000 Chinese men. After the introduction of the Immigration Restriction Act in 1901, the number of Chinese-born people in Australia plummeted. By 1921, there were only 16,000 Chinese men, less than half as many as there had been 40 years earlier. However, the number of women had risen to over 1,000. In percentage terms, that means the proportion of women increased over 40 years from less than 1% to just over 7% of the Chinese population. But by 1961, women made up a third of the Australian Chinese population. Even though their numbers were increasing, traditionally women didn't get involved in things like politics and business. They weren't newspaper editors or store owners or lawyers back then. That makes them harder to find in newspapers and government gazettes. But they still have their stories and they deserve to be told. Let's talk about the White Australia policy and women's migration. From its inception, the White Australia policy had one goal, to restrict immigration from Asia and Polynesia. From 1901, it became impossible for Chinese people to enter Australia unless they could get an exemption from sitting the dictation test. Now, the test had been introduced as part of the Immigration Restriction Act, and its intention was to deliberately limit non-European immigration. Basically, officials could ask a potential migrant to sit a 50-word dictation test in any European language, not just in English. People were tested in Welsh, German, Dutch. It was a test designed to fail. Short of learning every European language, the only way to get around the policy was to apply for an exemption to the test. After the introduction of the Act, men who managed to gain an exemption and legally come to Australia were allowed to bring their wives and families. That changed in 1905 when part of the Act was repealed. From then, not only could Chinese women not accompany their husbands to Australia, women and children who had moved here after 1901 were not allowed to stay either. Pretty tough laws. Under these conditions, it was pretty hard for women to migrate to Australia. That's not to say it didn't happen, though. If you were rich enough or prominent enough, you had options. Women would enter on temporary permits and repeatedly extend them, sometimes for decades. The wife and son of a laundryman in Western Australia extended their permits from 1929 to 1952. What a bureaucratic nuisance. The son even had to extend his permit while he was serving with the Royal Australian Air Force in World War II. Even before the White Australia policy, Chinese movement around Australia was tricky. In the years before Federation, each state had its own policy regarding Chinese migration. That meant that the rules could change when you crossed a state border. In 1889, 14-year-old Matilda Arquette was travelling with her three younger siblings. They were on their way from Wangaratta to visit their sister Rose in New South Wales. At the border, however, they were prevented from crossing because they did not have naturalisation papers. 
the young Matilda wasn't having any of it. She insisted that she was a native-born Australian and that she and her siblings were the children of the Chinese interpreter Marquette. The sub-collector of customs rejected her claims and sent the kids back on the same train they arrived on. The incident caused a minor outrage in Wangaratta, with the newspaper The Leader reporting on it. And I quote from it here. The fact that the customs officers of New South Wales stopped the native-born children of Mr Arquette, the interpreter here, when they were travelling by train to visit a relative at Gregory has excited general comment in the district. The children whose liberty is so circumscribed are natives of Wangaratta, very intelligent and Christian, and speak better Queen's English probably than some of the honourable gentlemen who made the law under which they are treated as aliens. It has been determined that for the peace and prosperity of the colony, Chinese immigration shall be restricted. But here were no aliens, but the most peaceful and defenceless of Australians, of like speech, education, religion and affections, with those young gentlemen who lift up their voices throughout Victoria and claim a more jealous guardianship of constitutional rights than their fathers are content to preserve. Since the liberty of the subject is involved, this case will give a suitable subject for meetings of the Australian Natives Association. But seriously, the incident should not be permitted to pass. If the customs officer did not exceed his duty, the status of Australian-born children of Chinese parents should be fixed as soon as possible and passports supplied to those who are entitled to them in the meantime. That was from the leader on Saturday 19th January in 1889. The feisty Matilda was perfectly correct. The Arquette children were native-born British subjects, but she and her siblings were caught up in the bureaucracy that was the New South Wales Chinese Restriction and Regulation Act. Incidentally, Matilda's brother William went on to become the country's first Chinese-Australian barrister. There's this idea that there simply weren't any Chinese women in Australia in our early European history. But census data compiled by the historian Alana Kamp show that there was a small but existent population of Chinese women who did make the journey down under, even during the white Australia period. We don't know for certain, but a lot of these were probably wives and daughters. It's interesting to think about the relationships these women would have had with their husbands, Often they would have been separated for years, with her remaining behind in China while he returned to Australia. In her research and talks, Alana Camp speaks of the concept of the erasure of Chinese-Australian women from our history books. For her research, she spoke with several Chinese-Australian women. One woman, Nancy, recalls that her father never actually lived in China, but commuted, On one of his trips back, he met Nancy's mother and they were married, but she stayed behind. Nancy said, He would come to Sydney to work and then go back to visit and that's how he met mum. And after they were married, she went to live with his family. In one of his trips back to her, she pleaded with him to take her to Australia with him. So that was Nancy. But just because they managed to make the trip here didn't mean it was plain sailing once they arrived. Life for non-European people under white Australia was precarious because of all the bureaucratic hurdles, but it was even more so for women who were constantly under threat of being deported. Another interviewee, Doreen, recalls the anxiety this caused her family. This is from Doreen. 
Having to go into immigration every year to get the extension, and even my father had to do that, but my mother more so because she was supposed to be on a more temporary status than what my father was. So there was a period where they kept being frightened they would be forced to return to China. That was Doreen. After the end of World War II, migration became slightly easier for non-Europeans. However, during this time, Chinese were restricted by immigrating by their own government. As a result, some families were separated for decades until diplomatic relations were reinstated between the two countries in the 1970s. Okay, so they are some of the reasons why we don't hear much about Chinese women in Australia's history. But they were here and they were part of the community. As with any minority, they would have had close connections between their families. They would have met up for holidays and to celebrate special occasions, speaking in their local tongues, eating their specialty dishes, and participating in their shared cultural experiences. But they were also part of the Sydney community. At that stall in 1918, raising money for the Red Cross, there were 20 Chinese women. Considering there were only 1,000 Chinese women in New South Wales at the time, that's pretty incredible. They were headed up by Mrs. James Chewy, formerly Miss Rose Chung Gon, who had been born to Chinese parents in Tasmania. She had married James Chewy in 1917, and they had one adopted Chinese son. Rose would stay active in relief work for the next few decades. She was a member of the Chinese Women's Relief Fund, and in 1940 was presented with a carved bouquet of flowers in appreciation of her work. Throughout the 1920s, Rose frequently hosted parties at her home in Karela Road, Cremorne, for both Europeans and Chinese guests. Reading through the papers, you can get a sense that Mrs. Chewy was a minor celebrity. This is from an article in the Daily Telegraph in 1929. The hours passed all too quickly at the ambassadors when Mrs. J. Chewy entertained a number of guests in honour of Miss Dorothy Chung, who is on holiday from Tasmania. Mrs. Chewy welcomed her friends in a becoming gown of Nile blue brocaded satin, a white fox fur and white summer weight felt hat. The table was artistically decorated with pink roses and blue delphiniums. The guest of honour, who looked charming in a smart suit of mauve crepe de chine with touches of old lace and a Tuscan hat, received a posy of tiny pink and mauve flowers. Among those who chatted over tea were Mrs. G.N. MacDonald, Mrs. Frances MacDonald, Mrs. Beckett, Mrs. Chung Sun, Miss Oriol Chong, Miss Dorothy Chung, Miss E. Fu, Miss D. Bing Lee. That was from the Daily Telegraph. I wish I got a write-up in the paper every time I hosted a visiting friend. Rose also has the unusual distinction of being, and I quote, the first Chinese lady in the Commonwealth to stand on a public platform and advocate the formation of a Chinese republic <laughs> under the 1906 draft constitution. The newspaper article notes that Mrs. Chewy is a fluent speaker of English. Well, yeah, she was born in Tasmania. Going back to that Martin Place stall, there were reports that the ladies were subjected to some racist abuse. In a letter to the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, William Yinsen Lee wrote, The Chinese community of Sydney were responsible for one of the features of Martin Place. They had one of the largest and best stocked stalls. Because of its unique stock, silks, embroideries, tea sets, porcelain vases and ornaments, furniture, lanterns, curios and other eastern goods, it attracted a great deal of attention. Consequently, it was a good source of revenue to the Red Cross Fund, about £600 being raised. 
there were 20 Chinese ladies assisting on the stall. I heard much praise with reference to the Chinese community's effort, but I also received reports of numerous insults to the ladies as to their nationality. It is the first time that they had been subjected to such unchivalrous treatment, and it always occurred when protection was not at hand. My purpose in ventilating the above is to obtain some recognition of what China is doing towards winning the war and also to protest against the conduct of a certain element that apparently will do nothing themselves to aid the empire in its hour of peril but ridicule those who try to do their bit. That was from the Sydney Morning Herald. The Red Cross responded by saying that they hadn't been officially made aware of any insulting behaviour, but they expressed their regret that any person in the community should have been guilty of offensive behaviour on Red Cross Day. They acknowledged the handsome financial return from the Chinese stall and added, The Red Cross officials deplore the conduct of graceless individuals, which was rightly resented by those in charge and of those assisting at the Chinese stall. To thank the Chinese ladies for the contribution, the Lady Mayoress's Sewing Guild invited them as guests of honour to an afternoon tea at the Town Hall. The Sydney Morning Herald reported. The rainbow flag of China gaily adorned the favours distributed at the afternoon tea given at the Town Hall yesterday afternoon by members of the Lady Mayoress's Sewing Club, as compliment to the Chinese ladies who helped so materially to assist the Red Cross Day Fund by their stall in Martin Place. Among the guests who appreciated the compliments paid their flag were Mrs Chewy, Mrs Marsley, Miss Lee, Mrs Chung On, the Mrs Gunik and others. As the guests of honour entered the room, they were greeted with a round of applause. That was from the Sydney Morning Herald. There's two things I love about this little description. One is imagining the meeting between the ladies of the Sewing Guild and the Chinese women. I'm sure it was a very polite affair, but how much did they have in common? Did the Sewing Guild ladies attempt to make some Chinese dishes, or was it all tea and sandwiches? We know that Mrs. Chewy was born in Australia, but what about the rest of the ladies? Who were the Mrs. Gunick? What do we know about Mrs. Mars Lee? And that's the second thing I love about this. Hearing the names. There they are. They're real. They existed. Knowledge is power, right? Once we start to find their names, we start to find their stories. So now I can tell you that Mrs. Mars Lee celebrated her 31st birthday by having a party at the Chinese Masonic Hall in Surrey Hills in September 1915. It's not much, but it's something. Instead of making excuses about why Chinese women have been ignored from Australia's history, we need to start taking action, to start talking about them, and to ensure that while we might not have kept great records in the past, we can have no excuse to do that now. Chinese women were part of the Sydney and Australian community. Throughout 1918 and in the coming decades, they were proudly doing their bit for the war effort. This is from the Sydney Morning Herald in June 1918. The Chinese residents of Sydney are enthusiastically cooperating in the effort to raise funds for the Italian Red Cross and will hold a social, which is being organised by Mrs G. A. Chewy in their Masonic Hall, Hay Street. After Japan invaded China in 1937, fundraising efforts turned to helping their fellow countrymen and women through organisations like the Chinese Relief Fund. We know from newspaper reports that the first Dragon Festival Ball was held in 1938, organised by women in Sydney's Chinese community. 
The ball was originally held to raise money to send Australian medical aid to China, but over the decades it supported many other charities, both in China and Australia. It ran annually for 34 years until 1972 when Australia assumed diplomatic ties with the People's Republic of China, but not Taiwan. From at least 1940, the ball featured the presentation of young Chinese-Australian debutantes to the Chinese Consul General. The events attracted over a 1,000 people to Sydney's Trocadero on George Street, showing that the Chinese community and its women and girls was thriving. Speaking with the Sydney Morning Herald in 2013, Robin Yip remembers making her debut to society in a fairy tale dress. She said... It was exciting. It's like getting married. As you stood, the spotlight was on you. The spotlight again shone on Sydney's young Chinese community when the ball was briefly revived in 2013 for the Chinese New Year celebrations, although this time without the debutantes. A lot of work goes into trying to find these stories of these women. We're lucky in Australia to have access to the National Library's digitised newspaper collection called Trove. And then in Sydney, we have the city's network of libraries and the State Library with their array of resources. But despite these resources, the information isn't at your fingertips like it is when you're researching men. When trying to uncover hidden stories, you need to start thinking laterally. You can search for Chinese women or Chinese women or Chinese ladies and so on, but once you get creative, you might be able to find some unexpected records. For example, searching for the exact phrase Mrs. Chung reveals that there was a Mrs. R. Chung who had been a baker in the small town of Menindee in far west New South Wales for 65 years before her death in 1932. Or, in 1888, there was the case of a Chinese woman named Mrs Chung Gun who was accused of physically abusing her adopted daughter. Or, more positively, Mrs Chung Ling Su, who was collecting money for the war effort along Campbell Street back in 1909. There's also this lovely story of a wedding of a young Chinese couple in St Andrew's Anglican Cathedral in Sydney in 1923. It was entitled White and Silver at St Andrew's Cathedral, and I quote from it. A picturesque wedding was celebrated at St Andrew's Cathedral yesterday afternoon when Miss Elsie Chong, daughter of Mrs P Chong and the late Mr Chong of Milton House, Milton Street, Ashfield, was married to Mr Frank H Lau of Canton, China. The Reverend Canon Charlton officiated. The bride wore a charming gown of silver lace mounted on silver tissue and draped softly to one side where it was caught with a cluster of silver roses. A train of ivory satin lined with blush pink ninon felled from her shoulders. The fan-shaped veil of white tulle was held in place with a circlet of orange blossoms. The bride's shower bouquet of white roses, hyacinths and carnations together with a pearl brooch were the bridegroom's gifts. Miss Sadie Chong was maid of honour and wore mauve brocade with panels of silver lace finished at the waist with a girdle of flowers and a Juliet cap of pearls. The bridesmaids, Mrs Pearl and Ivy Chong, were frocked alike in rose pink brocade with tunics of silver lace and pearl Juliet caps. The little train bearer was Miss Leslie Yin. Her pretty dress of pink tulle was lined with silver tissue and she wore a blue tulle bow in her hair. Two flower girls, Miss Sylvia Chong and Miss Thelma Yin, wore eau de Neil brocade and carried silver baskets of roses. Mr James Chong of Kaifong, China, gave his sister away. 
The best man was Dr. Yong Wai, Mr. Colin Chong and Mr. Albert Chong were the groomsmen. The reception was held at Milton House, where Mrs. Chong received the guests in a gown of navy corduroy velvet, trimmed with oriental silk and hat to match. When leaving for their honeymoon, the bride wore navy chiffon velvet and a black picture hat. Mr. and Mrs. Lau will leave for China by the SS Victoria on Wednesday. Wow. All those names. A search for Miss Chong reveals that in 1922, a young Miss Chong wore a 100-year-old Chinese gown to an event called the Kimono Ball to raise money for St Margaret's Hospital in Burke Street. The gown had been the wedding dress of Miss Chong's mother. There were also several Miss Chongs who married throughout the 1920s and 1930s. In fact, searching for weddings reveals a wealth of information, like the marriage of the Australian-born Coy girls, starting with Miss Mabel Coy in 1916, Miss Ivy Coy in 1922, and Miss Vera Coy in 1929 at St Andrew's Cathedral. The girls, who were from a well-known merchant family, all married into equally prominent families. Reading through the guest lists at each of these events, I'm struck again and again by just how many women there were and how little we've heard of their stories. And these are just the ones who were well-off or well-known enough to have their weddings in the paper. What about the other women? Those growing vegetables in the Sydney Basin to Centre Market. Those raising families in Hay Street and The Rocks. Those who would have loved to attend fundraisers and fancy weddings, but who couldn't those who were trying to survive in a strange new land under the constant threat of deportation. Every time we find these women, we have to say their names out loud and proud. In that way, we'll finally start to shine a light on the true history of Chinese women in Sydney. Today, Australia is home to many prominent women with a Chinese background in sports, academia, politics, medicine, media and entertainment. Through the work of people like restaurateur Kylie Kwong or medical practitioner Cindy Pan, board director Marina Goh, who we interviewed last season, we can finally see Chinese women represented in Australian popular culture. Each year, the city of Sydney celebrates Lunar New Year with festivals and events all over the city. There are literally thousands of people working behind the scenes to make these events happen. And yes, many of them are women of Chinese descent. In this episode, we've spoken specifically about Chinese women in New South Wales and how it isn't always easy to find their stories. There are, of course, stories of other women in other states. So, for example, in the Northern Territory, we have Granny Lum Loy, who arrived in Darwin from China as a child in the 1890s. She became a successful farmer and was a prominent member of the community. After her death at the age of 96 years old, her funeral was one of the biggest and longest in Darwin's history. In Melbourne, Mrs Ho Lap Mun ran a herbalist business in the early 1900s. Daisy Kwan ran a milk bar in Beechworth with her husband and was a lifelong member of Victoria's Young Chinese League throughout the mid-1900s. She organised many social events for the League and was their first female president. Selina Hassan was a tailor and seamstress in Darwin, supplying services to the military in the 1930s, and of course Rose Maud Kwong, the Melbourne-born actress and lecturer who started out as a public servant before pursuing her dream to tread the boards. In 1924, she moved to London to study drama and later travelled the world as an actress and lecturer in Chinese culture and poetry. Fortunately, these women were recorded in the history books, but there are undoubtedly hundreds 
possibly thousands or tens of thousands who were not for various reasons. Despite what the scant representation in history books might indicate, Chinese Australian women have been proud members of the Sydney community right from the beginning of European settlement. They may have, through various circumstances, been unfairly and perhaps unwittingly erased or omitted or given little mention in our history books, but we don't have to repeat the same mistakes. Chinese Australian women have shown that whether it's participating in an event like the Sydney Lunar Festival or raising money for the Red Cross in Martin Place at the turn of the century or making headlines as a restaurateur or providing food from a market garden or saving lives in a hospital or, these days, contributing to the arts, culture, science, business and wider community, Chinese Australian women have always been and always will be an integral part of Sydney's history. Thanks for listening to this episode of New Stories, Bold Legends. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find out more about me at ValerieKoo.com. That's K-H-O-O. You can find out more about people mentioned in this podcast and others who celebrate Lunar New Year from this generation and from yesteryear over at newstories.net.au. You'll also find pictures of some of the people we've mentioned so they can come to life visually for you. In the meantime, we hope to see you at the Sydney Lunar Festival. Throughout this podcast this season, you've been meeting a range of historical characters, the forefathers and mothers of the Sydney Lunar Festival, which is a modern day celebration of culture, heritage and diversity. It's through the contribution of these people from history who have created the unique culture we celebrate in Australia today. At the festival, you'll find iconic art installations in the form of huge lunar lanterns, each representing a different animal of the zodiac lining circular key. You'll find performances, talks and events throughout the city of Sydney. More than 1.5 million people attend the festival, which has become one of the biggest events on the city's calendar and the biggest celebration of Lunar New Year outside of mainland China. To find out more, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. See you at the festival.